Good morning again, church, and happy holidays. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve on the team of elders that leads the church. And just a quick note, a little side note, if you have children with you in the service today, just a fair warning, today we're going to cover some intense content. Today we finish up our birthmarks series in Romans 12. Birthmarks. My family bears what you could call birthmarks. Uh, If you're born a Dusan, you will be uniquely marked from birth with a disposition towards, you know, for example, loudness, loudness. Uh, We have family coming into town this weekend, and there will be a point in our house Thursday afternoon or so where I will be no louder than the third loudest person in the house. So if you know me, there is a necessary shock to that and obviously a disposition to want to stay away, but also pray for my wife. So that's our birthmark. Now, if you're born of God through the gospel of Jesus, there will be certain unusual traits marking how you live and move and have your being. And that's what we're going to discover. The final uh, sermon in this series of Romans 12, we're going to complete the chapter I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. Romans 12 will be in verses 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it or give place to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals On his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord, please add a blessing to the reading of your word. Lord, give us context for why we say, Thanks be to God. Lord, we can be as thankful as we possibly can be, and yet our perspective on how much we need your word, which stands above our opinions and our abilities, we need your perspective. We ask that you would help us to not try to remake you in the image of our perspective, but that we would be born again into who you are, even as we are created in your image, to be restored to it. And so Lord, show us, reveal to us in your word today, all of who you are with your righteous wrath and bloody love and grow us in who you are. Amen. Today, we're going to walk back through these five verses in a really unique way. Alberto preached last week, hallelujah, 
Come on, anyone else enjoying this as much as me? What this thing that's happening with you, man, that's, praise Jesus. One of the things he referenced, he said, Paul was not known, Paul who wrote the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, he was not known for disorganization. And specifically as the Spirit led him here at the end of chapter 12, Paul organized his arguments in a dynamic structure that's common to the Bible, especially the New Testament. It's called a chiasm. He did this in order to emphasize a really important eternal truth at the center of our passage that liberates us to live out redemption unusually, like actually obey the other strange things that this passage says. So I want to show this to you. First of all, there's this chiastic structure in the Bible that starts with this redemptive command, repay no one evil for evil. And then it says, verse 19, never avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God. And the central truth is that the wrath of God is a thing still. And so it plays back out in verse 20 to to give another unusual practical application here. That if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Who does that sort of thing? Well, people who can leave the wrath to God. Trusting that God in the center of verse 19 says God repays. That's why in verse 17 it says I don't have to. So it comes back to that same redemptive type of command at the end of our passage of verse 21. Don't, don't just try to avoid evil, but think about what's actually honorable and good. Or in other words, overcome evil with good. So I'm going to go through this verse, this passage, by starting at the center and working out from the center. Because only when we see, with God's help, the eternal truth that Paul is referencing at the center of this passage, will we see how the unusual application of that truth, like loving your enemies and and actually living at peace in a world that completely lacks it, how, how these commands are not just dangerous, they don't, they don't enable sin, they don't make us victims, but they practically give us power to live out redemptively, armed with this out-of-the-world grace that God gives us. And only when we consider the converse of that, really the other side of grace, if you will, which is the wrath of God. So most of my time is going to be spent at the center talking about the wrath of God, everyone's favorite topic. Last part of verse 19 says this, For it is written, referencing Deuteronomy 32, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. We have to ask, what does this say about God? What does this say about God? Vengeance is mine. And in light of the fact that God is a loving father, he's a a God that's full of love, It doesn't say vengeance was mine. It says vengeance is mine. I will repay. And I'm saying, what does this say about God? And by the way, this is always what we should ask of the Bible. What does it say about God? You know, I've heard well-meaning people call the Bible a a life manual. You ever heard that one? It's a a manual for life. Uh, There's even that silly acrostic out there, you know, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. 
right? Kind of a cute way of saying it that, that kind of fits the letters, B-I-B-L-E. You can even make a honky song out of it. Basic instructions before leaving earth or something like that, right? 90s, no? As clever as that might sound, that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is not a life manual. And the Bible and life itself pertains way less to what we're supposed to do, and it almost entirely pertains to who God is. It's not a manual. It's a story about God and his power and his holiness and his wrath, his mercy, his glory. And so when we read the Bible, we read it so that we can know him and trust him more and trade in our thoughts for his higher thoughts. And so what we do in life is merely to be an obedient response to who he is and increasingly how he reveals himself to be over and against, over in and against our thoughts. Now, the eternal truth from the center part of our passage is this, that God's eternal wrath, namely his anger over against sin of his beloved children, his wrath is righteous and measured. Measured. Now, I use the word measured. It reflects this word repay. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And this word repay implies that there's something stored up in an account, if you will, that must be set right. God is righteous and he doesn't allow inequity and injustice to persist forever. He settles accounts. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Now, I realize that the the topic of God's wrath is understandably discomforting, hopefully, to everyone. If you like wrath, then something's wrong with you, and God can help you with that. But it's discomforting for all of us. And what do we do with this? Let me remind you that all of us are going to have to stand before God on a very sure day to to give account for the things that we believe and say and think and do. And the responsibility that someone like me bears is higher because I'm preaching the word of God. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We'll all stand before God for these things. So if I, if I wrongly apply comfort, like uh, discomfort, to, to Romans 12, and I just throw it in there where God intended no such discomfort, I will have to give a reckoning before God for my loveless or harsh sentiment and judgment. But on the other hand, if I wrongly conceal the discomfort of a certain truth in the Bible, even in the name of love or kindness or uh, tolerance or, or, you know, with the best of intentions to the degree that I can judge my own intentions, then I'm also going to have to give account to God for my loveless deception. The thing is, is, I need to make a choice. And see, you make a choice as well for how you listen and respond to what God speaks to you, even beyond what I say. Amen? Now, I'm going to talk about the wrath of God and mention several common kind of rebuttals that we all kind of sort of think or hear in one way or another against the doctrine of divine wrath. And again, I'm going to work out from the middle 
of how Paul applies the doctrine of wrath to how we live our life and what a Christian's life should be marked with. Amen? So the first thing that I hear is that I often understand and relate to the sentiment that, you know, eternal wrath just seems a little bit disproportionate and harsh and unfair. We all have thoughts like this. And the reason we have thoughts like this is because being humans, we tend to primarily see things from a human perspective and vantage point. And we don't naturally feel inclined to consider things from God's vantage point because it turns out we're not God. Turn to your neighbor and say, I don't think you're God. If this was a revelation to you, then there's still grace for you, okay? But we don't tend to see things from God's perspective and like how our actions affect the dignity of others around us, whether we see it or not, or how our actions affect the safety and beauty of the planet, or how our actions go over and against how God designed the world to be. We don't have the perspective to judge like that. And so our view of right and fair is understandably distorted. And I'll give you an example of how this plays out on on one issue. The man who tells me, oh, the pornography that I have a habit of looking at, it's, it's kind of safe, and it just doesn't really affect other people. You see, this is his view, and it's distorted. I remember thinking like this before I knew Jesus. And from his perspective, he looks at things, he has his pleasures, his, his desires that he looks at, or, or she, if a woman's looking at this, and, and it just stops with him. It just moves on, you know, it's just kind of what everyone does. But God knows how many women and children are being enslaved by this whole obsession in the wake of our desires that prove really insatiable. They don't get satisfied like this in our perversions. God knows everyone who's affected by this. He knows their names. He knows every hair on the head of every person who's affected by this. He even knows how it harms the viewers of this distortion of what he created our eyes for. He knows how his precious creature's brains are being rewired and deteriorated and reduced by these animalistic thinking and thoughts and behaving. And how, because of this, our reduced brains and viewpoints were further indignifying the daughters of Eve that he created for glory. You can't even today sell a cheap cheeseburger without demeaning God's beauty. And I use that as an example to show you that the wrath of what we might otherwise think is just easily contained to me is not easily contained. It affects more than our viewpoint is allowed to see. But you need to know that God sees it. God measures everything. He does not miss anything. And this idea of just feeling like, man, this just is not fair. Let me just say something. I'm not being facetious. I know it might seem obvious, but the only people who have ever kind of said, you know, this isn't fair, the whole wrath of God thing, we can at least agree that the people who have thought or said these things are people whom I would call not yet dead people. Now, obviously, that's, that's clear. Like, you can only make an argument about God 
you know, before you die. But that's the point. Because when we die and we stand before God, we can no longer hide behind the veil of our limited perspective. We'll see. We'll no longer be able to suppress the truth about God that we've known all along, but we've tried to press down in various ways because our view will be changed. And our viewpoint of what's fair and what's not fair will be drastically changed because we'll see. And that's just the thing. Anyone who, 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 if you're like me, wants to think or say things like, well, that's not fair. If we have a voice to speak that, we have a mind to consider things because we're not dead yet. And we can consider these things and these truths that God shows us while there's still time to change our minds. Not to agree with me or you, but with him. And he can help us do that. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear, illuminate your word like you've always done in every culture and every time. So back to verse 19. Vengeance is mine, Paul says, quoting Deuteronomy 32. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now this word vengeance It's a Greek word that can also be translated punishment. So he says at the start of our passage, don't punish others because, in essence, punishment is mine. I will repay that. I will punish. See, God's wrath is measured. And the measure, as we know from the rest of the Bible, it's it's intimate. I'm sorry, it's infinite. Intimate, too, I, I guess. A terrible and infinite vindication of punishment against children that have rebelled against him, that he loves, that he afflicts with judgment. Now again, one could say, wait a minute, even if all I do every day for 80 years is sin, how does sinning for 80 years garner a punishment on, of billions upon billions of years of punishment? That just doesn't add up. The math doesn't add up. To which we could reply, well, there's some variables missing in that equation. Duration and regularity of sin, I suppose, are things that God factors into the equation. But we also have to consider the party against whom we sin. And go with me here. If If I harm a lizard, I do deserve punishment. That's wrong. Now, relatively small... Right, Because if I harm a human being, I deserve a large punishment. But let's go a step further. If we rebel against an infinitely valuable, beautiful, full of love father, a righteous God, the wage I earn for such an infinite offense is infinitely measured. It's eternal death. It's terrible wrath. It's justly deserved. It's righteous and measured. Now, I've heard people say things like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe that's what Paul says, but I just, I choose to disagree with Paul because that, you know, actually, you've probably heard arguments like this, but there's an article in the Star Tribune in Minnesota years ago where, uh, an editorial, I don't know what, even what the man's qualifications were. Um, th- these days, we don't need qualifications. We just have opinions, right? And he's like, uh, well, you know, Paul 
wrote about wrath all the time, and he just, the word hijacked the gospel of love that Jesus taught about. Let's get away from Paul. Let's go to Jesus or like John, the apostle of love. So let's go to John, Revelation 6.15. If you think that Paul's the only one who talks about the doctrine of wrath, Paul's words compared to John's words are different. John says this, Revelation 6.15, Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the commanders, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man, meaning all categories of humans, they hid in the caves among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to withstand it? You know, in the first coming of Jesus Christ, so many missed the Messiah because they were looking for a conqueror, but he came as a lamb, just like the prophets had predicted. Now, next week, we're going to take a little break from our Romans, the book of Romans. We're going to go to Isaiah for a month of talking about what Isaiah in in chapter 9 said about this coming Messiah. But listen, in the second coming, I I suppose there will be people that expect him to come as a nice, cuddly lamb, but the prophecy is consistent. He will come back as a lamb full of righteous, measured wrath. I mean, consider verse 16. They said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. There are those that blaspheme Jesus Christ today that will see him tomorrow, and they won't simply try to run to escape death. They'll actually be go, they'll go looking for death and will not be able to find it because they will not be able to escape the torment of the Lamb of God. So one could say, okay, well, maybe John and Paul are off. So I'm going to stick with Jesus because he only ever talked about love and peace. Mark 9, Jesus says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame with two feet than to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, forever language. Now, I think most people agree that the actually cutting out of the eyeball is symbolic, but not the part of the perspective of eternity that he's talking about. So back to Romans 12. Vengeance is... Mine, says the Lord. I will repay. God's wrath is righteous and it's measured. So one could say, well, maybe, maybe wrath makes sense. And maybe I'm okay with wrath, you know, for Hitler or Stalin or people that abuse others or someone who abused me, but it's a bit harsh for the rest of us good people.
And I want to say as tenderly as I can, consider that one sin destroyed the planet. One sin with a fruit destroyed the world, led to the chain reaction of corruption and perversion and depravity and tsunamis and climate curses and all evil. One sin. And have I sinned once? Maybe once a minute. And again, against an infinitely holy God. And you could say this. You could say, well, well, the Bible says that love keeps no record of wrongs. This is 1 Corinthians 13. And so, like, why would God store up wrath? Why would God have a record of wrongs? Now, God does not miss anything. It's been accounted for. But if you're a Christian, it's been applied to the cross of Jesus Christ. And the only reason that your sin can be, as the Bible says, removed as far as the east is from the west is because Jesus removed it. And if there is no it to remove, namely wrath-deserving sin, then there would be no such love to sing about. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Your sin was recorded. It was stored up for wrath. And every human sin will either incur wrath poured out on themselves forever, or by faith your sin will come under the wrath already paid for by Jesus on the cross. The very Son of God was sent by the perfectly loving Father to incur my wrath. This is the paradox of the Father's love and wrath. The cross is the intersection of God's righteous judgment and his merciful, atoning love. Christian, Jesus died for your sin. Your sin that justly owes the penalty, the punishment, the vengeance against your account. He died for your sin. He didn't just die for like a symbolic gesture. He died to pay the penalty for a righteous and measured wrath that a loving father owes against his rebellious children. Now, I realize this whole topic... I also understand the other propensity of wanting to not talk about wrath in church and wanting to kind of move quickly beyond scriptures like these because no person has ever been scared into loving Jesus. We can't just say, hey, hell's really hot, so doesn't that make you love Jesus? Let's sing joy to the world now. I understand that That doesn't equate. You can't be scared into loving God. But if you trivialize the wrath of God, then you trivialize Christ's sacrifice and why he died on the cross and what precisely it pays for, which is the centerpiece of his love. And where does that leave me today? As we move outward from our passage, this believing in God and what he owes me, which is nothing more than wrath, and what he gives me, which is nothing less than eternal grace, flips the script on all of my other human interactions. 
this is why Christians that are committed to the whole Bible have been some of the most unusual people in the history of the world. And let's get to why. Practical practical application. Because I trust that God judges, I don't have to. If you do not trust that God judges, you will, I promise you, you will feel inclined to judge at one point or another. If you believe in God's judgment, though, you're uniquely enabled to reserve judgment against others. I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon years ago. He's a pastor in New York. And he was talking about some of the psychological links between me believing that God judges and me being capacitated to not judge other people. And I wanted to try to go find that, but I didn't find it. And even if I could, I don't know if I could pretend to be smart enough to relate it to you anyway, but I did my best to summarize it. When we don't feel the need to judge because we're trusting in a, a, a judging, loving father, which is a paradox, a mystery to us, we have an ability to live freely with others who might deserve judgment, but will only get peace from us. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And don't miss the link between living peaceably in verse 18 and what it says in verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God. You see, if I'm not seeing the righteous and measured judgment against sin itself, maybe not just... uh, humanizing that person, though that person is their sin. No, that person is not the, uh, the definition, their definition and, and identity is not their sin. But I cannot conflate the two. I can't just say, oh, that person, I will judge that person. I can reserve judgment of their sin only because I trust that God is taking care of them just like he's helping me. And, he's, and he commands to us, because I've got the, the wrath stuff, I, I'm carrying that burden, the judgment burden, you don't have to. Have you noticed that there's certain commands in the Bible that God calls us to embody who he is to the world, and others that he doesn't? He actually calls us to surrender, leave it to, give place to certain things that God will reflect his image in ways that we shouldn't? Like, for instance... God called us to reflect who he is in love and generosity and forgiveness. But there are several attributes of who God is that he said, literally, leave it to me. Verse 19, leave the wrath to God. Give place to God's wrath. It's similar to how he says, the attribute of omniscience. I'm not asking you to know a lot of things. I'm asking you to surrender what you think you know all the time. Proverbs 5, lean not on your own understanding. For you to trust that I know things, you have to just say, I don't have to know everything. Or omnipotence, God is all-powerful. And honestly, we are supposed to reflect the power of God by our weakness. God chooses the weak things of this earth to shame the wise. And there are certain things about who God is, like his wrath that we're supposed to trust him and embody our trust by leaving it to him. Leaving it to him. Now, how do we know the difference? We can read our Bible and listen and obey and grow in understanding what he calls us to. We can do that. That's that's the burden that we bear. 
we're not qualified to take on the wrath of God. We're qualified to trust that he's got that. An electrician is qualified to work with live wires. And if you're not qualified, I strongly urge you to not cross over the qualification barrier in that realm. Even if you've watched some YouTube videos about how to work with it, the qualification's important. And God is uniquely qualified to be God. And we're capacitated as sons and daughters that are redeemed that he has taken the judgment that I deserve and I do not have to take upon myself the judgment that others deserve. So I can just, when I am given enmity and curse and insult, I can give them payback of peace. And that's all that I'm burdened to do. It says here, as much as it depends on you. And I love what this says, as much as it depends on you. Because most human beings, if you're like me, are inclined to think like, when you read hard things, hard uh, commands in the Bible, we're inclined to think about, man, this, this person over here, they really need to hear this message. Married people, we tend to give that side eye. You know what I'm talking about, that side eye. Like, man, they need this. No, it says as much as it depends on you. So husband, your wife can be 90% responsible for that argument you're having. And you are 100% responsible for your 10%. Now, I'm sure it's probably more like mostly your fault, but you got to be married for a decade or two to see this. It doesn't say as much as it depends on your intentions. It says as much as it depends on you. And this is what brings us to our weekly awkward moment of my own struggles. I wish I could say, hey, look, I... Sweetie, I, intend to li- I intended to live at peace with you. It wasn't my intention to be so defensive with you. But it's not valid for me to say to my wife or anyone else, you know, I didn't intend to make you feel that way. As much as it depends on you, not your intentions, but your actions. And so am I responsible for how I make everyone feel? Well, I'm definitely responsible for listening and learning when I make a mistake to not make the same mistake and bring that before God. And as Peter says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And this relates to all of our Christ-exalting relationships. If you're single in here, this is an important paradigm for you to learn as much as it concerns you. Live at peace. You you can't say, I, did, I didn't intend to say something insensitive towards your ethnicity or your gender. It wasn't, it wasn't my intention, so it's all good, right? You don't see things the way I say. No, it's your intention. What depends on you is how you learn and choose to grow because God's given you that grace. So we won't feel inclined to avenge ourselves when we trust that God's got the wrath stuff and we can live at peace because we believe that. Verse 20 picks this up again. To the contrary, in, instead of avenging yourself, trust that God is, is a God of righteous wrath. So, therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give something to drink. And so, by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Feed your enemies. This is so strange. 
I think the burning coals is a burning coals of conviction, not literal burning coals. And I've felt this in my own life, these burning coals in my own life. I, I was an enemy of God until students from a campus ministry at my high school preached to me about how Jesus saves sinners. And I was like, shoot, well, I'm one of those. Let me get some of that. And I got some of that. And on one day, September of 1997, I went from being an enemy to a son. It was a really good day for me. But in the days since, I've had a lot of struggle days where I've acted like an enemy. And and days like that, there's days where it's like, man, I want this feeling of conviction to go away. So I really, what I feel like need is punishment. I don't know if that's like a Catholic thing because I grew up Catholic. Like I just feel like I just need the, the feeling of punishment or if it's just more common for all of us. But let me tell you what's more convicting than the feeling of punishment and kind of getting what you deserve is getting grace when you know you don't deserve it. And one person, as I've watched in the last few decades of my, of my life, that's so good at this whole receiving disgrace from others and just spitting out grace like a champ is my mother-in-law. I'm, I'm going to embarrass her for a second. She's right there. Everyone look at her. <laughs> she, she knows how to give grace when grace is not given to her. And that's the tie-in. Again, grace is only convicting to people in light of the judgment we deserve. God's eternal wrath is righteous and measured, and because I trust that God judges, I don't have to. And finally, the redemptive command, I must conquer evil with good. You're not on earth just to survive, just to point out evil, just to mock what you perceive to be evil, like I do on social media way too many times, and uh, I have to go on... uh, social media fasts too often because I'm a jerk. You're not just supposed to point out the, what you perceive is bad about your least favorite politician. No, your, your burden is whatever is good, whatever is pure, think upon such things. And you're not just supposed to avoid evil. You're supposed to take dominion over evil. You're supposed to step in. We are supposed to step into dark places, not just spurning the darkness. Man, why is it so dark in here? But shining the light of God. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. But, now this but part of verse 17 and verse 21, our first and last verse, that's the most more confounding part. You don't just stop at not doing bad stuff to people who do bad stuff to you. But listen, give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. So wait, you're shown dishonor, and you're not supposed to just not reply with dishonor, but you're supposed to find what's on. How do you honor someone that's dishonoring you? God. You might say, Pastor Peter, this is hard. And I say, it is not hard. It's impossible without God, like the whole Bible. And that's the point. His grace to us is to be that forever hinge point on how we act. We are to preach the gospel to ourselves nonstop. Listen, you'll either treat others in reaction to how they treat you, or you will treat others in response to what God has once and for all done for you in Christ Jesus at the cross. That is to be the most formative, defining thing in our lives if we're Christians. Listen, 
this is to be what defines how you put up with your crazy aunt this holidays. That you can live at peace even if she is not bringing a whole lot of peace. And if it just blesses you this Thanksgiving break, then just be blessed and bake me, uh, you know, sweet potato pie and bring it to me on Sunday. And I'll gladly receive it as a love offering. Repay no one evil for evil. Now, it doesn't say repay no one evil for evil, but if they offend you, cancel them. No, our, our birthright is to be responsive to God's mercy and not reactive to the sins of others. And not even just dismissive. God has not allowed us to even be dismissive of others. Like, oh man, they're being a hot mess. We'll throw the okay boomer at them or whatever like that dismissive thing is. We don't have the rights to even be dismissive. If you see sin, we being forgiven of sin, run to sinners with the same wrath appeasing grace that Jesus found us in, in our sin. Jesus didn't cancel you. He suffered to cancel your sin. And listen, even as he's being nailed to the cross, the people inflicting visceral harm on him, he wasn't just saying, you know, they're okay. I won't judge them. He was actually concerned for their soul. Like as a nail's being driven through his carpal ligament, he's like, Lord, forgive them. He hurt more for his persecutors. Forgive them. They know not what they do. How how am I supposed to, Lord, I need help. That's why he sent us the Holy Spirit. We can, we can run to people who hurt us and respond with grace because we know we deserve wrath And so we can only give them what we don't deserve, but that we've received in abundance. Jesus took on our wrath to give us the same power that overcame his enemies the day he got up out of the grave. So I have some homework in this whole, in light of this, give thought to what is honorable before all. I have some homework for you. Think of a coworker that you struggle with. Maybe you don't vibe with, right? Before Christmas, I challenge you, save up a few Starbuckses. Starbucks, I. Save up, save up 10 bucks or so and take them to lunch, okay? Ask the Holy Spirit. Pray, pray in the Spirit. Pray for these people, this person, and ask, God, what is one good and honorable thing about this person? Now, I guarantee you there's a redemptive quality about your least favorite person, even if it has that, that's the person you're struggling with. You take them to lunch, and they say, well, why do you want to go to lunch? You say, I want to share something with you that God showed me about what he likes about you. And I want to share with you why it's important. I guarantee you whatever walls they would build up for you, if you come with that sort of affirming prophetic grace, it's very disarming. And so share with them what God likes about them. Share your story about how you came to believe that Jesus died for your sin and ask how you can pray for them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought. Give Holy Spirit thought, prophetic thought, to what is good in the sight of all, what is honorable. In verse 21, ends our, our passage ends the same way it starts. There's this 
There's this command to, to avoid evil, but it doesn't stop there. It gets to the honorable, to the good, to the pure. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, and it doesn't stop there. But overcome evil with good. Now, this word overcome twice is used, this word nikau, which we, uh, a few months ago, we examined. It's this, this God, nike, the conquering God. And it's a, it's a, a reminder that when we are, are battling, we're not battling against flesh and blood, but against conquering spirits. And when we repay evil for evil, there's something spiritually that's happening. We're fighting Satan with Satan. And Satan wins every time. God's not calling us to fight the battles that are brought against us. He's calling us to render outcomes, further outcomes of a battle that's already been fought and that's already been been conquered on the cross. And the best way to avoid being conquered on one realm in Satan's battles is to conquer with God's greater battles. There's a victorious type of conquering that is not easy and it's not normal, but as far as the Bible is concerned, there is no other way of living. There's no neutral. There's no like, I'm just a pretty good Christian and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of normal. Maybe there was a generation in American past, I don't know, that you could just kind of get by seeming victorious, you know, just being a decent citizen, a relatively upright, moral patriot, you know, and you just kind of went to church as much as you could and, you know, paid some tithes and, you know, like you're a pretty good guy or whatever. But that was all an illusion anyway. Because in all of history, you are either being conquered by the enemy or you're conquering with Christ. And today, the only way that this sort of living happens and conquering is, is able to be done is we overcome, we conquer by the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony and not loving our lives even unto death. And please know that I'm not just talking about, okay, if you're going to get by, you need extra church attendance and extreme commitment to one of our service teams. Now, I understand that maybe I can confuse commitment to my church goals with commitment to the kingdom of God. But please understand my temptation to confuse the two. Because we need the church. We cannot obey the Bible without the help that he's only designed for us to get in this church. I need it. If you're like me, you desperately need the people. You can look around you. You desperately need the people around you so that you can overcome and not be conquered by the busyness of any sort of lesser kingdom. So are you struggling with busyness or pornography or fear or body image hatred or depression or unforgiveness? If you feel like you're being conquered, God is here to help you and not just help you to not be conquered, but to conquer. And part of that is an evangelistic grace he wants to give you. He wants us to get together, and even as we have our own needs, we pray for names of people that he wants to reach through us. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, and pray for God to to show his light to people who don't know him yet, even through you in the midst of all your flaws. The Father is drawing people to himself in the midst of it. Because as we close, 
Here's the great hope in relation to wrath, in grace. Here's the great hope that we are to allow to be a deep well of joy and a wild spring of life to others. Jesus conquered. Jesus overcame evil with good. And Jesus conquered by being conquered. We said earlier that when we sin against an infinitely valuable God, it's an infinite punishment. But listen, the only one qualified to completely cancel it once and forever is a sacrifice of infinite value. And Jesus, for the joy set before him, went to the cross. The night before he did this, he was having a meal with his disciples that he referenced because it's a meal he wants to share with the world through us. And he picked up the bread, the Passover bread, and he broke it. And he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he lifted up the cup. And he said, this is the cup of my blood. And the cup was also symbolic in the Old Testament for the cup of wrath that we deserve. He said, this is the cup of my blood shed for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Would you stand to your feet, please?